Open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 2. Let's go. I always feel kind of pressured every time we start because I got to catch people up on uh, where we've been. I mean, we've been in the book of Jonah for like six weeks and we're just finishing up chapter two. Youth group from Minnesota. I'm sorry, I can't really go in depth about what we've talked about, but needless to say, it's not a story about a guy who gets eaten by a fish, okay? It's much, much more than that. We've been saying throughout uh, the story of our sin, God's grace, and God's mission. That's essentially what the book of Jonah is about. And we're slowly progressing along. We spent three, four weeks talking about what sin is. What is sin? Sin is saying, God, I'm going to run. I'm a runner. Sin is saying, God, I'm going to take control of my own life and do things my own way. Sin is saying to God, God, I don't like the way you're doing my job. So get out of my chair. Sin is not just doing bad things or disobeying God. Sin is this, this, this basic approach to life that says, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to navigate things my own way. And we've all done that, and we're all doing that to this day. Sin is running from God. And we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about what grace is, right? Grace. Now, as we've been talking about what grace is, we've talked about why it's so important to understand what grace is. We hear that word so often, some of us growing up in church. What is grace? Let me, let me put up a scripture passage up there that we've been meditating on. Colossians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. The gospel that has come to you all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. And what we've said flat out is that the day that you become a Christian is not the day that you go, God, I believe in you or I accept Jesus. The day that you become a Christian, the day you cross the line is when you understand grace in all its truth. When you understand what grace is, when grace begins to melt your heart, it electrifies you. When there is this catalytic moment where you go, I understand what grace is and what God has done for me. That is when you cross the line and you become a Christian. It is critical to understand grace because that is the moment of spiritual transformation, spiritual growth. I've been asking this question. Do you understand grace and all its truth? And what is grace? Here's a definition we've worked at. I'm going really fast. Uh, Grace is favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Now, the key word there is the word favor, right? Chen in Hebrew from Hanan. What is favor? Favor is letting somebody in. It's letting somebody in. We saw numerous passages in the book of Genesis where he talks about what it means. Now, what it means for us is this. It means that God has let us in to a place that we don't deserve to be, even though he's unobligated, to let us in. Grace is this willingness on God's part. Remember, and being in isn't just salvation, eternal life. Being in is this longing, this sense of acceptance, affirmation, being received that all of us are inherently born with, that we look for in all the wrong places. And God says, I give that to you, even though you don't deserve it. And I'm not obligated to give it to you. Okay? Grace. Favor. Granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Now, here's the problem. Problem is when people hear Christianity, you think this is what they think of. When people in this country hear you're a Christian or Christianity, they hear something entirely different than the gospel of grace. That's because we don't believe in the gospel of grace. 
So the way we live out our lives, they look at us and go, you're religious. You're very religious. In other words, you think, they look at us and they go, your understanding of what grace is, is that when you perform well, you get in. If you obey the rules, that's who gets in. If you, you know, avoid the bad things, that's who God accepts. That's who God receives. In other words, it's about your moral performance. That's what you and I really think. And so when non-Christians look at our lives, that's what they think. They think we're very religious, but not gospel of grace believing. The essence of Christianity at the core of it is the gospel of grace. That is, God receives you, not because of your performance, but because of the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. The gospel says, you don't get in because you're good or bad or rich or poor. You don't get in because of any of those things. You don't get in because of your more performance or social location. You get in based on grace. The gospel is radically egalitarian. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but to All who believed him and received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You're hearing me. Grace. Radically egalitarian. Again, but the problem is you and I don't believe that. We do up here, but we don't hear. We believe in our hearts. It's about our behavior, how we act, our moral performance. And I've been saying all of The reason why is this. Check this out. The reason why we prefer religion over grace and gospel is because if you perform well and you earn salvation on your hand, you could say to God, God, you don't have a claim on my life. The whole point of being religious is to put God in your debt. So here's what you do. I perform well. I'm a good person. I obey the rules. So therefore, I put God in in debt. And I say, God, so you don't have a claim on my life. Actually, I have a claim on your life. See? So I go to God and go, I don't deserve this. I'm a good person. Why aren't you answering my prayers? I obey all the rules. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Of course you know what I'm talking about. This is you and I every day, every moment, every second. I'm a good person. I put God in debt. And therefore, God doesn't have a claim on my life. I have a claim. So here's what we do. We put God in debt. We say to God, you don't have control over these areas of my life. These areas you do. But I've earned my salvation. So this is why grace is threatening. Grace is dangerous. Grace has a bite to it. Because if you're truly saved by grace, check this out. There's nothing that God cannot ask of you. If you are saved by grace and grace alone, there's not a thing that God can't ask of you. And we don't want that. We don't like that. It's threatening. So we go, I'm going to earn. I'm going to perform. I'm going to behave. Put you in debt. So I control my life and live the way I want. Religion. Nothing to do with the gospel of grace. Religion. If the gospel snaps inside of you, if the gospel snaps inside of you, if the gospel snaps inside of you, here's what happens. You switch from, I have to love God, to, I get to love God. I don't have to love God. I get to love God. I don't have to serve God. I get to love God. Are you kidding me? I don't have to kiss my wife. I get to kiss my wife. 
But our attitude is, I have to love God. I have to. That's because grace has not snapped inside of you. Grace snaps. Grace snaps inside. I'm telling you, you are going. See, some of you, this is your. The difference between a religious person and a Christian who believes in the gospel of grace is it's like a musician. A religious person is like a musician who plays all the right notes. But someone who understands grace no longer just plays the right notes, but they cut loose and make music. A religious person is someone who counts their steps very carefully as a dancer to make sure that they're doing the right. A gospel-believing person cuts loose and they dance and they dance. And they dance. Are you religious? Or are you a Christian in whom gospel has snapped? I'm just saying that one last time. Gospel has snapped inside. I'm tell- it's what it is. I'm telling you. Because when, gra- when grace snaps, it's not just the, huh. When grace snaps, it's, huh. Has it happened? How do you receive grace? Oh, I got to get done with this review so I can move on. How do you receive grace? You see not only your unworthiness to receive it, but you see the height that God went to give it. Anybody a fan of Dorothy Sayers? You got to read her. The phenomenal Christian writer. This is what she said. She said in this part of not only you got to see your unworthiness to receive it. That's the one half. She said none of us feels the true love of God until we realize how wicked we are. But you can't teach people that. They have to learn by experience. That's why when I say up here, you got to see your unworthiness. And some of you that are like 18 years old, you're like, I'm not that bad. Wait till life kicks your butt. All right? Because there's something about us older folks. Yes, I include myself in this category. Well, life teaches you, doesn't it? Because, you know, you get older and you realize, man, I'm a far more coward than I thought. Man, I, I, I lack so much love much more so than i thought <gasps> i didn't think i was capable what experience will teach you you wait you got to see your unworthiness but the other path of that is you got to see the height to which god went to give it and last week i did this whole thing about the mercy seat and jesus is our mercy seat and all this other stuff but the important key was that jonah is looking to the temple Two, t- three times in this passage, he goes, I look to the temple. I look. What's he doing? He's looking at the temple, the place where substitution was made so that sinners can receive grace by the shedding of someone else's blood. What does that mean? Jonah looks to the temple to remind himself that he is accepted and affirmed even though he is not capable and worthy because someone else went on instead. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, right? The temple. Now, the reason why that's important in our spiritual transformation and growth and we talk about grace is you got to constantly look to the temple. you got to always be looking to the temple. What do I mean? Faith, many of us think, is like a thermostat. You know? Like, I need faith. So it gets really cold and all of a sudden faith kicks in. And we get warm like, I have faith. We think it's like that. It's not, you know what faith is? Faith is this constant act of preaching the gospel to your soul. Faith is constant act of preaching the gospel to your soul. Working it in, massaging it in. That's what faith is, okay? Now, why is it important? Jonah looks at the temple, why? 
And this is says, I feel abandoned by God. I feel banished by God. But he says, but I look to the temple. Some of you sitting here this morning, you feel abandoned by God. You feel banished by God. You do. So what are you going to do? You sit there and go, I feel abandoned by God. I feel banished, banished by God. What am I going to do? Bible says, look to the temple. Why? Because when you look to the temple, you realize that Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, not abandoning you to pay for your sins. He's getting the ultimate injustice of God. He's not abandoning you in that moment. Now, would he abandon you now? Because you mess up here and there. Does that make any sense? You look to the temple, you're going, he didn't abandon me on the cross. He's not going to abandon me now. Some of you, your life is out of control. You're going, my life is completely chaotic and out of control. In some ways, you're acting like an orphan. What do you do? You look to the temple. You look to the temple. You say, if God is my heavenly father and I'm accepted completely and totally in grace, then he's in control of this. And I'm not going to act like an orphan. You look to the temple. Here's another one. I get all the time. People really struggle, Christians, with unanswered prayer. Why isn't God giving me this good thing that I'm asking for, right? Now, you got to look to the temple. What do I mean? Massaging the gospel. Romans 8, what does it say? God, who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him give us all things? Can I just, this is like, this isn't deep theology. This is like common sense. If God empties a treasury of heaven for you, in other words, if somebody spends $10 million on a gift for you, do you think that person's going to skimp out on the wrapping paper? That's what we think. God did that for me. But, well, this gift, well, why isn't he answering this prayer? He doesn't love me. Massage the gospel. This is why throughout the Bible, the psalmist, you know what they're doing? Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Psalm 43. Put your hope in God. What is he doing? Faith is talking to yourself. Doubt is listening to your heart. The reason why some of us lack faith and we struggle with unbelief is the deafening noise of our hearts. And you know what our hearts say. He doesn't love me. He's abandoned me. It's not fair. No, 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 no. And we listen and we listen and we don't ever talk to our hearts, preach to our hearts throughout the Bible. Ephesians 5, sing songs of music in your heart. What's it saying? Sing to your heart. Don't just listen to your heart. Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Faith is not like a thermostat. Oh, I need faith. It's cold. There it is. I've, faith is preaching it, massaging it, preaching it, talking. This isn't weird. I'm struggling, God. I speak to my heart. Why are you downcast? Now, try not to do it when somebody's like sitting next to you on the L train. You know what I mean? Because they might go, what are you doing? Do it under your breath, you know, or doing your heart. Actually, for me, it helps when I actually speak it out, you know. So what I do is I find myself a place where nobody's around, and I preach to God. I speak to my heart. Talk to your heart. Faith, why are you downcast on my soul? Just this week, feeling down, feeling low. Why? Religion, right? My identity is found on my performance, right? So I try and gauge. Is the church growing? Oh, our budget is struggling. Mm. What do I do? I preach the gospel. Are you accepted by God because you're a good pastor? Peter. Peter! Are you accepted by God because you're a good pastor? Because, you know, I'm kind of hard of hearing, right? So I got to, you know, I got to like talk to myself louder, okay? 
Like this year is good, but this year is not. You know what I mean? So I got to go, Peter, so speak to my heart, preach. Hey, hey, for some of you, you have never heard this before. You have never heard that the Bible says you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You've never heard that before. Even though you can't read the Psalms without going, why is he talking to himself? Why is he saying, oh my God, my soul. What, what is he? What are they doing? They're preaching. Preaching. Talking. Talking. Let's move on. Here it is. We're done with this in chapter two. So how do you know you've experienced grace? How do you know? Right? How do you know? How do you know you're sitting there going, Peter, I've been here for the last six weeks, and you've talked about this, and I think I'm a Christian. By the way, I love doing that. I love doing that. I love you guys walking out here going, I thought I was a Christian. I love the fact that you think critically. How do you know you've experienced grace? Okay? The key verses actually are verses 8 and 9. Okay? Look, it says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. By the way, real quick, this is inside the fish. Okay? Jonah's inside the fish. And he's singing this prayer, this song. Okay? Now, what is grace? How do you know you've experienced grace? Here's number one. Your cynicism about messed up people is eroded. That's how you know you've experienced grace. And I put the messed up people in quotes because the reality is, aren't we all, to a degree, messed up? Again, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so here's what I mean. Your cynicism about messed up people, the key word there is the word grace, forfeit the grace. In Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word chesed. You know why that's key? Chesed. Hesed is a very special Hebrew word. Hesed literally means loving kindness or, check this out, covenant love. Hesed was the word that God used to describe his covenant relationship with his people Israel. Hesed, covenant love. At this time, there is no other group of people from whom God has a hesed relationship with. Israel's only one. Now, there are this, this word is so pregnant with so much truth. Chesed, loving kindness. In other words, Jonah's going, the love that God has for me, chosen people of Israel, it's as much as theirs as it is mine. The, the grace that God has bestowed upon us and our people, it's as much as that. And who's they? Number one, they are the, the Ninevites, from whom God says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah, I need you to go and preach because God says, their wickedness has come up before me. And the word literally is, they're exceedingly wicked. They're bad. They're really, really bad. Their bad wickedness come up from me. And Jonah's saying, those people that I despise, those pagans, those filthy Gentiles, those people without the law of God, those people, God's grace as much as theirs as it is mine. He is literally saying, the decorated war hero needs grace as much as the head of the drug cartel. And you know that you've encountered grace if you really believe that. You know, but here's the thing. Some of you sitting there going, that's uncomfortable. I don't, what, what? That's because you believe in a religion of self-effort. Pull yourself up spirituality. If you believe fundamentally in a religious spirituality that's pull yourself up, you're saying, I did it. I can behave. I'm obedient. What's wrong with you? Get yourself together. 
Religion of self-effort, self-righteousness looks at people messed up and saying, what is wrong with you? The reason why you can't get your act together is because you... But a person who's experienced grace looks at a messed up person and says, I must look worse to God than he looks to me. And look what God did in my life. God could help him too. Do you believe that? (laughs) Of course you don't. Because there's something inside of you that says, Peter, decorated war hero, head of a drug cartel. Uh, According to whose scale? Yours? Yours? Well, I'm not the war hero, but I'm certainly better than the head of the drug cartel. So therefore, God... The gospel says that all people are evil and fallen apart from the grace of God. Everyone. So no one is more evil and more sinful than anyone else. And therefore, anyone can be recipient of God's grace and be welcomed into his family. But if you're religious, there's a thing that says, I'm a good person, I'm moral, so therefore, what I just said goes... But for how many of you, this is good news? Clap if this is good news to you. Yeah, yep. Hey, 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 if you're gospel-believing, cynicism is gone. You're no longer cynical about really messed up people. You're going, hmm, him? I don't think so. And again, I want to remind you, come on, God changed you. Come on. God changed me. Are you cynical about really messed up people and going, oh, there's no hope for them? If gospel has snapped, sorry, I said it one more time, snapped inside of you, you look at messed up people and you go, God help me. God could help him too. Just on a side note, isn't this why some of you are surprised that you meet non-Christians who are more kind, more loving, more gentle, just better people. Here's the reason why you're surprised. You may not say it, but you're surprised because deep down inside, you think that's what saves you. It's because you're kind, you're gentle, you're moral and loving. So when you meet a non-Christian, you go, wait a minute, what's wrong? He's a non-Christian. How could he be? Are you saved because you're more moral? Or are you saved because of grace? So why are you surprised that there are non-Christians? Truth be told, non-Christians are nicer people. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Before you all, should we be more moral? Should we be more devoted? Should, absolutely. We have the living God inside of us for crying out loud. But that's not what saves us. But see, the part of the problem is because we think this, Christians walk around pretending we're more moral. We walk around pretending we're more devoted. And we're never honest. That's the reason why non-Christians are so turned off by us. Because they look at us and they go, we know you're just pretending. We know you're not that. But the reason why we pretend is because we think that's who God accepts. We have to be more devoted. We have to be more moral because that's who God accepts. So I'm going to just go on pretending. Is that who God accepts? Is that God receives? Grace. So stop pretending. It's okay. Matter of fact, it opens up. Somebody go, you're a Christian. How come you're not? Oh, you're saved by grace? What's that? Tell me about it. What a powerful opportunity for witness. Some of us think that the gospel is we're moral, we're more devoted. That's not the gospel. I want to declare this morning that that's the enemy of the gospel. The gospel says we're all saved from what? From us. Us and our inability to be moral, to be devoted. And that's good news. One other thing. This will also impact how we approach people of other faith. That's why we're doing November 7th event. 
Can we be honest here? Don't some of us walk around and look at Muslims and other people, and we kind of feel this, I'm better, I'm better. And the reason we think is because we have the right doctrine. We have the right faith system. Again, is that what saves us? Are you saved because you have the right doctrine, the right faith system? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you die for that Muslim. The Bible says you die for that Hindu. You feed him. You feed her. You house them. You clothe them. And you lay down your life if you need to. That is the way of Jesus. See how far we are from the gospel of grace? Secondly, here's how you know you've experienced grace. Your bigotry is eroded. Your racism, your ethnocentrism is eroded. Jonah runs, not just because of their wickedness, but he runs because he sees himself as a Jew, a member of the chosen people of God. And the Ninevites were, well, filthy pagans. What's he doing? I'm better. Why? Because I'm part of the chosen race, my race, my culture, my ethnicity. I'm not going to go over there and preach the gospel to those filth. We're all self-righteous. What is self-righteousness? Don't just think of an arrogant, proud. Self-righteousness, Apostle Paul says, this theology of righteousness. He says every single one of us have, has a way of patching up our righteousness, a patching up a sense in which we can go, because of this, I'm not a bum. Because of that, I'm not a bum. I've accomplished that. I'm somebody. I'm, I'm, because of that, I'm significant. The hardwired nature of the sinful human heart is that we look around everybody and we have to compare ourselves to everybody else and we have to feel better about ourselves than everybody else or else we can't live with ourselves, right? Right? And one of the ways we do that is by looking at other people of other race and culture and we're going, I'm better than you. I'm more, a very common way to feel better about yourself. And this plagues our society today. Think about the country that you and I live in. A common way that people feel better about themselves is by looking at their race and ethnicity. And here's what they do. Listen. And they attribute moral superiority and moral significance to mere cultural differences. We don't just look at people and go, I'm different from you because of a different race and culture. But we go, we take a step further. We go, I'm different from you in race and culture. And that makes me better than you. By the way, this goes both ways. Our church, I'm preaching the choir. So you know what you need to hear? You need to sit there and go, I'm not a bigot. I'm not a racist. Look at those bigots. Look at those racists. I'm not a racist bigot like them. So that makes me better. So you're self-righteous against the self-righteous. How does that make you any better? I'm more enlightened. I'm not a racist. Look at those racists. Look at those bigots. If you watch MSNBC, how do you feel when you watch Fox News? Yeah, wow, right? And if you watch Fox News, how do you feel? You see what I'm saying? Some of you, let me just hit on, some of you have a huge heart for the homosexual community. And that's okay, that's good. But how do you feel towards those who hate homosexuals? Just as self-righteous. If there are racial groups in the city that you despise and you look down on, you have not encountered grace, my friend. When the gospel, when the gospel grabs a hold of your heart, 
Some of us that grew up in certain culture, ethnic backgrounds where we were told. <laughs> Man, I grew up in the Korean church where the first thing during service was some old elder walked in and wasn't Jesus' Lord. Some elder walked in and he said, be proud to be a Korean. <laughs> be proud to be a Korean, okay? Jesus, God, be proud to be. I was drilled with that growing up. I know my heart. I know my heart and how far I need to go. Because you know, Korean people are the best people in the world. <laughs> I didn't get a single amen from any of the Koreans. Are you, are you serious? Are you serious? Are you serious? By the way, for those of you that are just visiting our church, I am completely joking, okay? I am, uh, man, he's sitting here going, does he mean that? Minnesota youth group? No, I don't mean that, all right? Can I say one last thing, and then we'll move on to this? For those of you that go, I'm not a racist, I don't look down. Here's the other ultimate test, you ready? When the gospel has its way in your heart, do you know that you can tell because your friends and your sphere of influence There are people before whom you would have never wanted anything to do with. Do you know that? There are people that you may have despised. There are people that irk you. There are people. There are people. If the gospel snaps inside your heart, you look at your look at your friends. Look at your friends. Are your friends just like you? Think like you? Talk like you? Act like you? Dress like you? Smell like you? Everything. Are your friends people that look? Or as you look at your friends, go, you and I are friends? Ha! Not possible. If not for the gospel. You know I can tell? All I have to stand outside on a Sunday morning. Why do you think I do that? Why do you think I stand on a Sunday morning? I see who you come to church with and who you go with. And what I see is a group of the same looking people coming together to church. Sitting down. Worshipping. Going out to lunch together. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. Talking about all the white people in our room, okay? That's what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Again, if you're visiting our church, what is going on? Can you tell I need grace? Can you tell I've got a long way to go? Can you tell? Third, 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 third. Here we go. Keep going. Your unwillingness to forgive is eroded. This is hard. This is why you need to come back next week and we get, because we're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to really get into the nation of Assyria and Nineveh. And here's what historians tell us. They were brutal people. They were violent people. They took torture and brutality and violence to heights that culture and civilization had not seen before. And guess who was kind of part of the brunt of the, uh, on the other side of that? Israel. So here's the question. The question is, how do you forgive people who've hurt you? I know, like, maybe there are like two people in here that are asking that question. How do you forgive someone who has hurt you? The gospel. What do I mean? I'm going to break this down, okay, and take it slow, so I need you to follow, okay? You cannot forgive somebody who has hurt you if you can't see the sin in your own heart. 
You cannot forgive somebody if you can't see the judgmental self-righteousness that's in your own heart. It's impossible to forgive someone who has wronged you. Because as long as, as long as you hold on to this attitude of, I could never do that. I would never do that. You will, you will never be able to forgive someone who has hurt you. If we refuse to see the unworthiness and sin in our hearts, we can't forgive. A major barrier to forgiveness is the fact that we deny the depths of our own sinfulness and hiding how much our own hearts are like those we're unwilling to forgive. A person who's helped me greatly with this is a guy named Miroslav Volf. Every single one of you in this room needs to pick up a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And this is what he gets to. Do you know what God says to Jonah in Jonah chapter 4 verse 4? Listen. Jonah preaches. There's a revival. And he goes, God, kill me now. Kill me now. That's what Jonah literally does. God saves the city. And Jonah's response is, your compassion and your love, too quick, too grand, too great. Kill me now. God comes to Jonah in chapter 4 verse 4 and says, listen, he has, he says, do you have a right to be angry? You know what God's saying? The only way that you and I feel like we have the right to feel angry is if you and I go, I would never do that. I would never do that. The only way we feel like I have the right to stay in my bitterness and my anger is I have, I would never do that. Now, this isn't even deep theology. Again, let me go. The person you're willing to forgive, are you really willing to say, you know what, Peter? Even if I had their family background, even if I had the influence that they had, even if I've experienced all the things that they've experienced, even if I've been through what they've gone through, even if all the influences and life pressures that they've gone through, even if I went through that, I would still never do what they did. Are you really willing to make that claim? Is anybody in here really willing to go, even if I... Do you know why, if you have, feel like you have the right to be angry, you can't forgive? Because if you go, I would never do that. And deep in your heart, you go, God accepts me because I'm a good person. God accepts, follow along. God accepts me because I'm a good person. God accepts me because I'm a moral person. God accepts me because I'm obedient. If that's the basic posture of your heart, which is religion, how in the world will you ever admit your flaws? How can you possibly admit that you're a flawed human being? Because if admitting that, there goes your identity. There goes the basis of who you are. So if we're religious to the core, when somebody wrongs you, I have the right to feel angry. Why? I would never do that. And I would never admit that I could be capable of that. And we're unable to forgive. Does that make sense? See, some of you in here, listen, listen. And you're going, but Peter, it's not that easy. I'm going to get to that moment. But first thing is, if you're in here, the first thing is you have to let the cross of Jesus and the gospel melt your heart. What do I mean? You have to have enough emotional humility to say, we are all equally sinners before God. We have to have enough emotional humility to go, I am capable of that. I am capable of hurting someone. We need to have enough emotional humility to admit our fallenness and our weakness. But it doesn't end there. You also need to have emotional wealth that you don't feel the need to hold your bitterness. What do I mean? The reason why we don't forgive someone is because there's a need. We lose something. What do we lose? I lost faith. He did that to me. I lost faith and I'm not going to forgive. Or something is taken away from you. I can't believe. Or 
somebody breaks up with you. Something is taken away from you. And you feel this need to hold. You need emotional wealth to know Jesus Christ gives that to me. I have it. I have it in him. If you don't have emotional humility, you're going to feel, I have the right. But if you don't have emotional wealth, you're going to feel the need to hold. Can I read you a letter? It's written by a single man, and he actually wrote it to another pastor. But I think it, 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 it gets to the heart of what you guys probably wrestle with. This is a young man, single man. He says, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young lady who changed her mind. I forgave her, but it took me a whole year, and I had to forgive her in small sums over the whole 12 months. I paid these sums whenever I spoke to her and kept myself from rehashing the past. I paid them whenever I saw her with another man, and I refused self-pity and rehearsal inside for what she's done to me. I paid them whenever I praised her to others when really all I wanted to do was slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, but she never knew them. But I never knew her payments. But I know she made them. I could tell. Forgiveness is not only a refusal to hate someone, but it's choosing to love and will the good of the offender. It's painful. Forgiveness is not only a refusal to hate someone, but it's choosing to love and will the good of the offender. It's painful, but cross and nails and pain are the currency of forgiveness. But it is as the ultimate cross and nails were, it leads to healing and more to resurrection. In order for you to truly forgive someone, a debt has to be paid. When there's a wrongdoing, a debt, there's a debt. In other words, if somebody breaks your $100 lamp and there to be forgiveness, you could do one of two things. You make that person pay. Eat the cost. You broke it, eat the cost. Or you eat the cost. Forgiveness is when you say, I will absorb the debt. I am willing. Now, here's the thing, you guys. The challenge is, this doesn't happen overnight. Because the sense of, they wronged me, is strong. And so what the Bible is saying is when you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that it slowly melts your heart is you pay them in small sums. You know what forgiveness for some of you is? Literally, literally. It's not going, well, I'm going to will the good and I love. Forgiveness for you might be, I will no longer rehash the past. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. I'm not going to go home anymore and poke pins into that imaginary figure. Forgiveness for some of you is, I'm not, I'm not going to slander and gossip. Every time I get an opportunity, when somebody goes, so, she broke up with you? Oh, yeah, let me tell you about oh. forgiveness. I'm not going to do that. Forgiveness. Impossible. Unless you see, I'm unworthy to receive grace. But look at what he went for me. The emotional humility to say, I don't have the right. And the emotional wealth to say, I don't have the need. It's going to take time. But how many of you are willing to journey?
forgiveness. And I'll talk more about this. By the way, there's a difference between vengeance, which I'm going to talk about next week. Vengeance. Because most of us, we either are vengeance or good Christians. Passive aggressive. <laughs> oh, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Christians, here's how we deal with forgiveness. Vengeance is mine. You going to get it? Or Christians, it doesn't hurt. Passive aggressive. Forgiveness is neither. Forgiveness is choosing the good. Let's keep going. Two more and then we're done. Another sign, you become more joyful. You become more joyful. This is what he says. In thanksgiving, I will make my vow. His guilt is gone. You say, you don't know how big my sin is. You know what I say to you? You don't know how big God's grace is. How big is grace when you're an infinite God? Say it. An infinite God has infinite grace. And last time I checked, infinite is the opposite of finite. Yeah, it is the opposite of finite. (laughs) Meaning, I I wanted to be profound, but that was kind of stupid. Meaning there's no limit. There's no limit, okay? There's no limit to how much God forgives you. Capacity sin is great, but his capacity to forgive is even greater. You know, joy comes when you realize God's grace is deeper than my guilt. God's grace is wider than my wanderings. And God's grace is stronger than my weaknesses. God's grace is greater than my sin. Problem challenge for some of us is this. I'm not, I don't even have to say anything. Some of you walked in here, you're just feeling guilty. You're just feeling condemned. Just walking around feeling guilty and condemned. Here's the reason why. You set some sort of a standard for yourself about the kind of Christian kind of person you need to be, secular, you know, Christian. You set some moral performance standards, and you're not meeting them, right? And deep inside, you go, I have to meet them to be accepted by God, to feel like a good person. You're not meeting them. So there's this constant sense of guilt, condemnation, because your entire identity is about performance and how well you do or you don't do. Okay? Am I talking to anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you're on the opposite end. You're like the three, four of you, and you're going, I don't know what that's like, man, because I'm super disciplined. I am super disciplined. I get up every morning at 6 o'clock, I say my prayers, I read the scriptures, and I avoid the bad things, you know? But the problem with you is you're anxious and insecure because you're sitting there going, how long can I keep this up? How, much long, how long can I continue to do this? And there's this constant sense of dread. The most miserable people I know are people who are either very arrogant because they feel superior to other people, or they are in total despair because they feel like they can't measure up to their own expectations. And as I said before, you fluctuate back and forth and like, Every 10 minutes. I'm in despair. I'm a terrible person. I'm all that. I'm in despair. I'm a terrible person. Fluctuate back and forth. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says this. The reason why there's joy, you don't perform and then you take your good record to God and saying, God, here, I put you in debt. Now accept me. Gospel says, Jesus Christ did all the performance that you ever needed to do and he gives it to God and he goes, now he can be received unconditionally. You and I are not accepted because of what we do. God says, I love you unconditionally. Accept you, receive you based on what Christ has done. The day that that snaps inside of you, I'm sorry, I said that one more time. The day that snaps inside of you, I'm serious. You'll walk around no longer feeling like something's hammer's going to drop, anxious and secure. The day that that hits you is you walk out going, I am unconditionally and radically accepted by God, even though I'm more wicked and sinful than I dare believe. I am more accepted and loved than I dare hoped at the same time. Isn't grace an amazing thing? Lastly, you become radically obedient. Sign that you have experienced grace. You become radically obedient. 
You don't notice what Jehovah says. I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Class, church, question. Where is Jonah? Where is he? He's in the belly of the fish. He's in the belly of the fish and he's saying, I will sacrifice to you. You know, with the seaweed wrapped around his head. (laughs) By the way, I'm sorry, this is totally side note, but I'm sorry, I'm really acting silly today. I'm really not like this, but the whole book of Jonah, I'm sorry, the whole book of Jonah, I like crave Japanese food like every day. Like, I don't know. It's like nasty craving for Japanese for for fish and for seaweed. I'm just like, I'm going to go have some today. What is Jonah saying? You know what Jonah's saying? Listen, listen. Where is Jonah? He's in the belly of the fish. Is he out of his trouble? Is he out of his dilemma? And yet he says in his dilemma, God, I'm all yours. Whether you get me out or not, I'm all in. Whether you come through for me or not, I'm all in. Sacrifice my vows. I'm all in, God. There is no bargaining. And I talked about this before. If you haven't experienced grace, your approach to God is 100% one of bargaining. That is, God, I will do anything for you if you do this. I will do everything for you if you do this. And what God says to those who says, I will do anything for you if, is God comes to you and says, there is one thing. There's one thing you're not willing to give me. What is that, God? I'm willing to do anything if. God says, the one thing is for you to stop saying, I will do everything if. And simply come to me and say, I will give you everything. Period. The one thing that God asks of those of you that bargain with God, I will do everything for you, God, if. And it sounds very spiritual. And God comes and says, there's one thing I want from you. What is that? All of you. I trust you. Period. Jonah doesn't wait till he's vomited out into dry land. By the way, next week when we get to that, it's going to be so fun. Can you imagine a man who's been inside the fish for three days and what he looks like when he comes out? Jonah doesn't go, God, when you vomit me out of the fish in dry land, then I will sacrifice. He says, right now in the belly of the stinking fish. I'm all in. I said that's the last thing, but there actually is one more. And this I'll end with. You know you've experienced grace if you choose the third way. What do I mean? Salvation is of the Lord. This right here is the whole Bible. The whole theme of the Bible is right here. Salvation is of the Lord. This is what Jesus was about. This is what the whole Bible is about. Genesis Revelation. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, the problem is, you and I will totally miss what that truth means if you think salvation totally in terms of getting to heaven. Why, why are Christians obsessed with getting to heaven? I'm sorry, I opened the can of worms. Like, we talk about that all in our church. So I can get to that some other week. Salvation is not just about going to heaven. Salvation is in the Garden of Eden. Salvation is about restoring the sense of acceptance that we lost. When man and woman decided to come out from under the rule and reign of God, we became naked and ashamed. And our entire lives, our entire lives are lived from the perspective of, I got to cover myself. I got to find some form of salvation. I cover myself up. 
so I can feel approved, so I can feel affirmed. And the two primary ways that the world goes about it is the irreligious way is, I don't need God. I don't need salvation. I'm good. Why? I'm successful. A lot of money. Look at who I'm dating. Look where I live. Look at the class I go to. Look at the grades I got. The irreligious way of saying, I'm good. I don't need salvation because you know what? I have these other functional saviors that meet my need. The religious way, which is like most of us in here, the religious way is, I'm a good person. I'm moral. I go to church. I take fastidious notes. Religious, irreligious way. Every single one of us in this room has a tendency to fall into one of those two spectrums. Which are you? Now, what does it mean when salvation is of the Lord? When Jesus comes and he says, um, for those of you that are trying to seek salvation and your careers and your relationship, you and I both know that that heads to an unending pursuit of more that will lead to nothing. No matter how much you pursue that, it'll never fill your soul because your soul is way too big for it. And to the religious person who says, salvation is of me. I'm a good person. I do all these things. Jesus Christ comes and says, there's a third way. Here's a third way. Jesus Christ provided a way for you to be saved. Not just heaven, but to be in a relationship with the creator God who says, I sent my son on your behalf. He lived a life you should have lived. And he died the death you should have died. And when you acknowledge that he did that for you, salvation comes. And when grace, last time, snaps inside of you, you no longer approach your relationship with God going, I'm a good person, I'm moral. You simply rest in the righteousness of Christ. And you say, when God sees me, he sees me as his son Jesus. See, the way I wanted to end this morning, because I've been preaching this for six weeks, is I actually wanted to give a call for those who want to commit their lives to say salvation is of the Lord. Listen very carefully. You are not a Christian, even though you've been going to church all your life. Why? Grace hasn't snapped inside of you. You don't understand grace. You are not a Christian because you buy, obey the Bible and obey all the rules. That's not what makes you a Christian. A Christian is someone who has understood God's grace and all his truth. In other words, you've come to say, I am unworthy of his acceptance. And yet, look at the height to which God went. I believe that, Peter. I believe it. It's not about being a good person, a moral, attending church. I believe that Jesus Christ lived the life I should have lived. And then he died the death I should have died. And, and, and when I put my faith in that truth, God accepts me unconditionally. And he sees me as his son, Jesus. Secondly, the reason why in our church we say, those of you that want to make that commitment with all the lights on, we don't do raise your hands, and everybody eyes are closed, we we ask you to come up front is because every single one of us that's been a Christian in here in this room knows that we can't do it on our own. We can't. We can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. You know why? This whole grace gospel thing, you don't just have to preach yourself. You got to have other people preaching it to you. Grace, grace, why are you downcast? Put your hope in God. Preach the gospel. We need. You can't do this Christian life alone. And we do this, not for sure. We do this so that when you come up and say, Peter, I want to follow Jesus and what he's done for me. You have a family who comes around you and says, I'm with you. I'm with you. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Oh, weird. I mean, those of you that are sitting there going, oh, Peter, I get it. I I was a religious person, but I get it. I understand grace. 
I want to make that commitment today. Come on up. Stand up from where you are and come right up here and join me up here. And we're going to pray together. For those of you that are just sitting, instead of trying to look around with your eyes open, pray. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not my work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to sit up here and wait for just a moment or two for anybody in this room, anybody in this room that wants to say, I believe that. I want to follow Jesus. And if you came with somebody and you're afraid to come up by yourself, come up with that person and ask him or her to come up with you. Is there anybody here this morning? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Anybody here this morning? Just going to give just a few more moments and we're going to wrap up. Is there anybody, anybody here this morning that says, I want to follow Jesus? I understand grace. I understand grace. Let's call, and I'm going to have us stand in a moment, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to close for today. Is there anybody else that wants to do that today? stand together. Worship team, please come on up and get ready. I want to pray for us. Let's pray together. God, we come here this morning. And this morning, Father, I'm I'm particularly feeling compelled to pray for men and women in this room who have people in their lives that they need to forgive God I just pray that you would make 
grace and truth of grace clear. That you may truth of grace come alive in their hearts, in their souls. That you would make this wonderful, amazing truth of what it is that we are recipients of grace, God. Speak in the life of that man and that woman so that their hearts will be melted by a reflection of your sacrifice on the cross. That you would enable forgiveness. You would enable forgiveness, God, in their hearts, in their minds, and in their souls. Grace. Infinite, unending, eternal grace. Meditate this entire week and the fact that He is your Savior. He is your salvation. None of this world, He alone is your salvation. Do not forfeit the grace that is yours by worshiping idols. He is your salvation in the name of the Father, the Son the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Amen and amen. Amen. Have a great week, you guys. We'll see you back here next week. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.